Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. When the days drew near for him to come to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went to another village, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say well, farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Lonnie, and thank you, Mark, Casey, uh, all of our musicians, and all of you for your presence. It is astonishing how wonderful it is to be in this place with you all and to see your faces. Some of you, uh, we, we haven't seen each other in about a year. Now, you may have seen me on the camera, but I haven't seen you. And uh, most, most of you, ladies, you all haven't aged at all. Guys, some of you look a little different from last time than I saw you. But it is so good, it is so good to be together in this holy place. Um, and Lonnie, thank you again for reading our scripture. If you've been tuning in or present with us over the last two months, you know that we're right near the, the back nine of, of this series that we're calling Kindred Hearts. And, and just to sort of bring you up to date, I want to make sure that you understand the whole rationale for this series. What's the premise or what's the thesis of this series? It's simply this. What unites us as the family of God, what bonds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ is not, first of all, church polity. That's important, but that's not what bonds us. Neither is it ecclesial structure or facilities. It's not even denominational affiliation, though there is some validity to that. But what really binds us together and keeps us together is a common confession, Jesus is Lord, and a common mission. I loved hearing us read together the Nicene Creed. Isn't that beautiful? And Casey, for your explanation of the, the reason it was written, that's a lot of words to help us understand the relationship of the co-eternal, co-equal relationship of this Trinitarian concept that's so critical to the Christian faith. But the original confession of faith was not that wordy. It was three words. Jesus is Lord. A common confession and a common mission. Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always. A confession and a commission is the glue that holds the church together. Now, this particular text that Lonnie has read for us 
is peculiar to Luke. You don't find it in any of the synoptics. You don't find it in the fourth gospel. It is only in Luke. And chapter 9, verse 51, begins a section of material that we often refer to as the travel narrative. In other words, this particular verse and ongoing signals the end of the early portion of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and it also signals the beginning of his journey to Jerusalem, which is going to be the journey's end. Now, isn't it true that I've heard this all my life, that when we speak of faith and life, we usually talk about it as a journey, right? I get that. It's a journey. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who perhaps first said, life is a journey, not a destination. And I think there's some truth to that, but I don't think Emerson was the first to say it. I think Dr. Luke was the first to say it. Faith is a journey. I have another favorite quote, which some of you could use sometime. Faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. And that's an important note as well. So in Luke's gospel, and also in his sequel, he wrote two books that are in the New Testament, his gospel and the book of Acts. He gives us two examples of a faith journey. One of them is very gradual, and the other is very abrupt. The first is the Emmaus Road. You remember this story? You see it in Luke 24, where after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there are two disciples, only one of them is named, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple are walking. They're leaving Jerusalem after that difficult weekend, and they're walking towards a setting sun. They're going west on a seven-mile hike from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they're traveling, they're sort of reiterating the events of the weekend of what happened on Good Friday, Silent Saturday, Easter Sunday, and what they're doing is they're talking as they walk. That's why I go to Radnor sometimes, and I'll join someone along the trail and I'll talk. If there's no one else, I talk to an educated person. I talk to myself sometimes. Whenever you want an educated opinion, do that. As they're walking, they're trying to make sense of the weekend when suddenly they're joined by a stranger now, we know who the stranger is, but they don't know. And as they're walking along, a stranger joins them. And listen to the language of Luke. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, that is the scripture, the stranger begins to interpret what happened over the weekend. In other words, the stranger is putting the pieces of their life together. When they reach their destination in Emmaus, it's supper time, and they insist that this stranger, this is hospitality, they insist that the stranger stay to eat. He stays for supper. And as is tradition in the Jewish tradition in that time, whoever is the guest plays host at the table, and he breaks the bread, and their eyes are opened. And then he vanishes, and they look at each other, and they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he walked along the way and interpreted our lives? That's the Emmaus Road. That's a gradual revelation. Now, if you were raised in the church, there's a lot of folks, and I feel that too, like I, you can't always point back to just one specific moment. It was a gradual recognition where through Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and the new MYF that gradually you just began to understand Jesus is Lord. That's one way. There's another road, there's another journey and it's called the Damascus Road. 
This is in the sequel to to Luke's gospel. It's in Acts chapter 9. You remember Saul. He was named Saul before he became Paul, before his conversion. He was an enemy of the church, and he was en route to Damascus to stamp out this heretical cult called the way. We call it Christianity. And as he was on the journey, the risen Christ appeared to him and knocked him for a loop, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and gave him a new vision, and Paul did a 180. That's instantaneous revelation. So one is an event, and one is a process. Now, there's no doubt that both roads are represented among you today. Some of you have had that knockdown 180 moment with Jesus, others sort of a progressive movement, a, a gradual understanding. But either way, it's a journey. And unlike what Waldo Emerson said, Luke infers that faith is both a journey and a destination. The Christian walk is a path, it is a way, but it's a way that has a definitive end, a definitive goal. Okay, to the text. The text begins, Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, notice I've italicized the words taken up, I'll get back to that. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. What's that mean? It's really an echo of Isaiah 50, verse 7, who also set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Flint is a mineral. Flint is a hard gray rock that is generally used figuratively in the Scripture to convey determination, resolution. It means that the man is resolved. He's going there no matter what. So Jesus is now determined to go to Jerusalem from Galilee That's his destination, but it's more than a geographical goal. It's a missional goal. In other words, the aim, the calling of Jesus's life is redemptive love, which he now knows is going to be accomplished through sacrifice, through suffering, through self-denial in Jerusalem. So in this travel narrative between Luke 9 and Luke 19, everything that happens along the way is a part of a process towards his redemptive objective through which he will, listen, be taken up. What's that talking? That's ascension. That's a code word for glorification. It it, it means, it means exaltation, which is going to happen not in spite of, but because of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, I'm going to say something that seems superfluous to say, but let me just test it out with you. We get all this stuff about the faith journey, yes, but the truth of the matter is the faith journey is not a straight line between two points. Have you noticed that? Or at least it isn't for me. The journey is not a straight line. It's sort of like the Hebrew slaves between Egypt and Canaan, we have a tendency to wander, don't we? Isn't it interesting that it took God three days to get the Hebrews out of Egypt, and it took him 40 years to get them into the promised land? We used to sing that song. I wish we could sing it today. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. It's not a straight line. Faith is not linear, it's squiggly. Now, I think when I was growing up, I thought, I, I thought it looked like a straight line between A and B. It's not, it's squiggly. It's kind of zigzag, right? Sherry and I, when we were in Georgia, I don't know if you remember, we had a governor named Zell Miller. You remember this guy? He wrote a book, and sometimes you couldn't tell if he was a Democrat or a Republican. I respected that because he, he had some original ideas. He didn't just follow party lines, but they gave him a nickname. You know what it was? Zigzag Zell. And we used to laugh about, I thought it was a compliment, Zigzag Zell, because he had discovered that life as a journey is a little bit squiggly. It's two steps forward, one step back, three steps sideways. It's just not linear. Laura Brantley, who's on our staff, taught me a new word the other day. I don't know if you've heard this word. It's called cottywomple. You ever heard that? Neither had I. Cottywomple. It means to travel in a purposeful way towards an unknown destination. And that sounds like the book of Exodus to me. We knew God was leading us, but we didn't know where we were going. Squiggly. We don't always get sanctification all in one bump, do we? It takes a lifetime, really. We're kind of like the original 12. We don't get it all at first. In fact, Lonnie, you see this, you see this in the text that you read in the scene in Samaria. Now watch this. Jesus, who's going south from Galilee, he's taking the ministry to Jerusalem. He's resolved to go there, but he decides to go to Samaria first. And so he sends his friends uh, to stake a claim, to prepare the way, to find hospitality. That if you're going to preach there, you've got to have a parsonage. And so he sends his friends there to establish a place to stay, but the Samaritans won't let him stay there. They reject Jesus. Why? Because he's headed for Jerusalem. That's what the scripture says. You say, explain that, okay? There was tension between Judeans and Samaritans. I think one of our prayer requests, Casey, today needs to be our prayers for the Israeli-Palestinian situation in the Middle East. Thousands upon thousands of years of conflict, uh, of, of racial tension, and, and we still struggle that with that in our culture as well. Every culture does. But the prejudice between Judeans and Samaritans was based on the rivalry between where they argued the temple really was. The Samaritans said, the temple's at Mount Gerizim. The Judeans said, no, no, the temple is in Mount Zion, it's in Jerusalem. And so you had Judeans and Samaritans fussing about the real place of worship, but also theological disputes concerning the right way to read the sacred books and the messianic text. And above all, what divided them was who is a real Israelite? You know, that sounds a little bit like the 21st century too. Who, who is a real Christian? Who is a real patriot? Who's a real American? Who's a real Wesleyan? 
This, this sounds very familiar. It, it's kind of the same old, same old. And it hit me when I was studying this scripture the other day that if I spend as much time reconciling as I do distinguishing between, the world might be a more peaceful place. There was tension. And I imagine, I'm trying to put myself in the disciples' place. I imagine the disciples, more than anything, they were just agitated that Jesus sent them to Samaria in the first place. I mean, really, if you give me a choice to come to Brentwood or Bug Tussle to be appointed First Methodist Bug Tussle, I'm coming to Brentwood. Y'all ever been to Bug Tussle? It's not a real place. Never mind. Anyway, Jesus they were cheesed that Jesus sent them to Samaria in the first place because they're at odds with each other. And this is a fight waiting to happen. In fact, most Jews who were going north to south, who were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, you know what they did? They would go out of their way (laughs) to take a bypass on Samaria to avoid setting foot on their soil. But not Jesus. Jesus just went right into the heat of the conflict. He didn't bat an eye. He went where the need was, and he was rejected. He's still rejected in this world. Did you know it wasn't just the enemies of Jesus who rejected him? It was his friends. He preached in Nazareth, and they ran him out of town. He went to Samaria and they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want him there. The people were inhospitable and unreceptive. And here's where the lack of understanding in the disciples happens. Watch this. When James and John see that they're rejecting the gospel, James and John come to Jesus and said, Lord, can we now call down lightning from heaven and just incinerate these people? And Jesus rebukes them. What's interesting to me is if you study the Old Testament, that's exactly what Elijah did in 2 Kings. He called down fire on the enemy, but not Jesus. Jesus rebuked them. In one of the earliest manuscripts of this text, Jesus is saying, you guys don't have the same spirit that I have. Now, it's interesting that earlier in the same chapter, chapter 9, Jesus had explained to the disciples, here's the proper response when you're rejected. Shake the dust. Shake the dust off. He, he didn't say burn it down. He didn't say hellfire and damnation. He said, just shake your dust. Move on. Because he said, I haven't come to destroy souls. I've come to redeem them, to save them. And so Jesus never internalizes rejection. He doesn't preach, turn or burn. He moves on, and it's his way of saying that you're not necessarily responsible for the lack of response when you're rejected. It's squiggly. It's kind of zigzag sometimes. But this journey has a definitive end. And then, I need a little more time. Y'all got a little more time? Do you? Thank you both. Um, So then in verses 57 through 62, watch this. There's this threefold picture 
of potential disciples who just didn't follow through. Uh, This is embarrassing because this is so me. In fact, this whole scene, Lonnie, while you were reading, it's really troubling to me because it sounds almost like Jesus is chasing off more disciples than he's pulling in. Sounds like he needs a marketing person, a communications person to help him, soften him up a little bit. Listen again to the text. Along the journey, someone said to Jesus, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Whoopee! Who's going to follow that? If I'd been there, I would have taken Jesus aside to a little church meeting and said, you need to make this a little more appealing. It needs to be a little bit more convenient. To another, Jesus says, follow me. And the guy says, okay, Lord, but first let me go and bury my father. Now, his biggest problem is anytime you say to a command, but first... When Jesus calls you to do something, when he calls me to do, and I say, but first, I need to take care of this. Someone said to me the other day, you know, pastor, when I get my life back together, I'm coming back to church. And I thought, if you could get your life back together, you wouldn't need to come to church. We'd need to come to your house. You come broken. I come broken and in need. And this is where I find redemption. First, but first, I got to do this. First, I got to take care of my business. But first, let me bury my father. And, and Jesus says, this is so offensive. Let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That sounds so offensive to me. And it almost smacks of dishonor. Doesn't the Bible say honor? Father, mother. It could be in the Jewish tradition After 12 12 months after the funeral, they would collect the bones and put them in an ossuary, a box, and that was a symbol that the time of mourning was over. It could be that this guy's saying, Dad's been gone for six months, but give me six months, and I'll follow you, but first. A third guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, Lord, I'll follow you, but first, there it is again, let me say so long to my family, and that That sounds acceptable to me, right? In the Old Testament, Elijah made the same request of Elijah when the mantle was passed on to him. Let me go tell my family goodbye. And Elijah said, okay, but not Jesus. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. What is with Jesus? You need to chill. You're losing more than you're bringing in. But Jesus is not interested in creating fans. He's not looking for supporters or spectators. He's not looking for season ticket holders. He's going after disciples. And a disciple is one who resembles her teacher, who lives like, loves like, serves like, the one he follows. And Jesus is always honest about discipleship. It involves a cross. I don't know how, but I missed that in seminary. I I could only see the beauty and glory and it's there, but there's a cross. The life of a disciple is terribly inconvenient. 
And it's not a box to check on my to-do list. It's not even a priority among others. It's the priority. There's no but first with Jesus. Jesus is first. Jesus is last. Jesus is alpha. Jesus is omega. Jesus is beginning. Jesus is end. Jesus is the journey and Jesus is the destination. And everything else is secondary. Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul knew that when Jesus calls, it's not just to, to leave the worst of life. Sometimes it means leaving the best of life. I think of the Apostle Paul, B.C., before Christ, Paul had a pretty good life. He was religious, he was respectable, he was reputable. But after he met Jesus on that journey to Damascus, in his reflection to the Philippians, listen to what he said. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, it's me. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, as to church membership, I joined BUMC. Yet whatever gain, I have come to regard it as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Not just over the worst of life, over the best. When our daughter was young, Haley was young, it's hard for us to believe that she's expecting one now. When she was young, one night, she was about seven, it was my turn to put her to bed. And that sometimes took two or three hours to do, and some of you resemble that. After the lights go out, the questions come, of course, the big questions, not the little ones, the big questions. And so we were lying there, my arm around her, and, and she said, Daddy, do you love me? I said, sweetie, you know I love you. Daddy, do you love mom? You know I love mom. Daddy, do you love brother? Well, sometimes, I said. Daddy, do you love God? And I said, more than anything, and then she thought a minute and she said, Daddy, do you love God more than me? I had to think about that. <laughs> That's risky. But I said, yes, honey, I do. And she said, why? And I said, because if I didn't love God most, I could never love you enough. And she closed her eyes and went into a peaceful sleep. There's a reason Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? It's priority. There's a reason that Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. That means somebody who's singularly focused. There's a reason that Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom. And all these other things will be added. It's about first things first. And when we get that right, it creates kindred hearts. When first things are first, we can live life 
as it was intended to be lived and we can even make a way for our neighbor. May it be so in Jesus' name.